Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. How, without knowledge of geography, can we bring back over land and sea from far-off countries whatever is lacking in our own? This cannot be done without ascertaining the bearings of the compass and the positions of the continents and islands. Jan Blau Everyone's right and no one is sorry That's the start and the end of the story From the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning Hello and welcome to From Wittenberg to Westphalia, The Wars of the Reformation. My name is Benjamin Jacobs and this is episode 4, Walking Tour Part 2. Last time on Wittenberg to Westphalia, I introduced the concept of the walking tour, and we walked through Iberia and Greater France. Today we will be examining the British Isles. Before we do, I have some housekeeping. Firstly, I really want to thank all of you for listening. There are still not too many of you in the grand scheme of things, but you are already way more than I expected to care about my little ramblings. It really makes it worth it to have so many of you listening. If you would like to get in touch with me with comments, corrections, or sweet, sweet praise, feel free to contact me at wittenbergtwestphalia at gmail.com, or leave a note on the Facebook page. You can also comment on the entries on the website, but I know it is a bit rough right now. It's on the radar, believe me. I also have a correction. Last week, I said that the southern French dialect was called Languedoc because of the way they pronounced the word yes, as opposed to the way they pronounced it in northern France, which was away. This was actually incorrect. I was recently listening to Kevin Stroud's Excellent History of English podcast, a podcast about the etymological history of English. In it, he has a section on the various French dialects, because obviously French has had a lot of influence on English. And he pronounced the northern dialect as languidoil, which is how it's spelled, O-I-L. I've said before I have no head for languages, and many of you have probably already noticed some of my uh, eccentric pronunciations. This episode's going to be full of them. But I know enough modern French to know that they don't pronounce it that way, but, of course, this is old French we're talking about in the 1300s. Obviously, as Kevin Stroud is doing an entire podcast on etymology, I'm going to quite happily bow to his superior knowledge of pronunciation on this issue and recommend that you all check out his podcast. I have one other small piece of housekeeping. Currently, it's about the size of a lemon, and it's in my wife's uterus. Yes, soon it won't just be the cats accompanying me in the background of the episodes, but a baby as well. We really couldn't be more excited to meet our new child and teach him or her all about heresy and the rise of the state system. I am going to have to wait till August to start, so I guess I have some time to get my notes together. 
Anyway, without further ado, let's get to the next region in our walking tour of Europe, the British Isles. The British Isles are a group of islands lying off the north coast of Europe, separated from France by the English Channel, and from Scandinavia by the North Sea. For the purposes of our podcast, I am putting Iceland in Scandinavia, not that it matters all that much. The main geographic features of the Isles are the islands of Britain and Ireland. Britain and Ireland are mostly north-south features. Britain is the larger of the two and is on the east side, and Ireland is the smaller of the two and is on the west side. There are a number of other islands in the archipelago, and I'm going to run through the ones that are worthy of mention just very quickly. There are the Channel Islands, which by all rights should be part of France, because they're on the French side and are very close to the coast. But they've been part of the inheritance of the English monarchy ever since the days of William the Conqueror. And since these political boundaries have remained unchanged since well before our story starts, I've decided to go with these boundaries. To the northwest of Britain, there are a number of small islands very closely associated with Britain itself that are part of the modern nation of Scotland. Most of them aren't all that important to our story, but they were important during the early Middle Ages as part of the Viking Age trade networks, which will come into our story from time to time. Chief among these islands is the Islay Island Group, which is most important as the home of very, very nice single malt scotch whiskey. My favorite kind, in fact. As I do have a child on the way, anyone who wants to make a donation to the show in the form of a bottle of single malt scotch whiskey is more than welcome to do so. The Viking Age trade networks also included the Isle of Man, which is a rather large island in between Ireland and Britain. The Isle of Wight is to the south of Britain, and is important because it shelters a very interesting bit of water that we will return to later, called the Solent. To the northeast of the island of Britain are the Shetland Islands, and then further north still, the Orkney Islands. These islands have been inhabited since the Neolithic, and are very interesting in that respect. They were also interesting in the early Middle Ages as part of that Viking Age trading network. At the halfway point between the Orkney Islands and Iceland are the Faroe Islands. These were very important during the Viking Age as a stopping off point between Britain and Iceland. So let's get back to the main events, Ireland and Britain. The island of Britain is a long north-south feature culminating in a slightly shorter east-west feature, while Ireland resembles nothing so much as a bean. The British Islands are the first area we have visited not to be chiefly characterized by that great tectonic event of our times, the impact of Africa with the European microplates. Instead, the islands have a confused, varied geography hard to characterize by simple geographic features. This is because the British Isles were largely cobbled together from bits and pieces of land created all over the world in various different geological, geographic, and meteorological contexts. Particularly important was a large amount of historic volcanism, although this is now in the past. The south of the islands are probably best characterized as a continuation of that great, flat, European alluvial plain. But these plains have been added to by the erosion of the mountains that were created by volcanism and uplift in the various wanderings of the British Isles. The most characteristic thing about Britain's geography is how impossible it is to name a characteristic trait. In general, Britain is mountainous in the north and west, except where it isn't, and it is flat and fertile in the south and center, with some rough hilly areas. Britain lacked long navigable rivers until the canalization at the end of the early modern period, except that the Thames and the Severn are quite long and quite navigable. The Humber is in there as well. 
Despite the lack of rivers, Britain had a multitude of very good harbors whose prosperity derived largely from their proximity to the external trade networks rather than an ability to control internal hinterland. The flatness of the south meant that roads were more of an option than they were in other regions, particularly since the main trade good was wool, which is relatively light. In the north, trade by land was less of an option, but settlement was generally closer to the coast anyway. Ireland, by contrast, is flat in the middle and ringed by mountains, although these mountains are relatively hilly by comparison to those in Britain. For most of the Middle Ages, Ireland's rivers seem not to have been used extensively for shipping, but this seems to have had more to do with politics than geography. Nevertheless, the mountainous exterior of Ireland does tend to force the water into the interior rather than letting it flow directly out. This makes the interior of Ireland a mind-boggling tangle of waterways and marshy areas separated by very fertile lowlands. This terrain, when combined with the relative lack of political sophistication and its location way out in the Atlantic Ocean, means that Ireland was not heavily involved with continental trade. To get any more specific, we're going to need to get down to the regions. So let's resume our walking tour proper on the island of Britain. As I've said, Britain is relatively hard to describe with simple geographic features, and it's kind of a tangle of different parts. Probably the best way to describe it is that it looks vaguely like an ampersand, which is that thing above the 7 on your keyboard. This isn't exactly right though, because unlike the ampersand, the island of Britain has the Cornish Peninsula, which is a long, straight east-west feature that continues out along the southern coast of the island. This is something the ampersand lacks. So if you imagine the ampersand, or you look at your keyboard, or whatever you feel capable of doing in this situation, and you just draw a line out starting at the bottom point of the ampersand and going to a point on the left about even or maybe a little bit past the bump. That's basically a rough concept of what the island of Britain looks like. So let's start with that Cornish Peninsula, which is part of the region of Wessex and part of the country of England. England makes up the central, southern, and eastern portions of the island of Britain. For the most part, England is flat and fertile, which means its farmland was the best of any of the regions on the island of Britain. In the Middle Ages, England had one of the most centralized monarchies of any state in Europe. As a result of its unique history of Anglo-Saxon invasions, Viking invasions, and Norman invasions, creating a hybrid political culture. This had the unfortunate consequence that when the king wasn't quite up to the job, England tended to fall into periods of anarchy and civil war. This seemed to happen once every other generation. However, when England had its stuff together, it was clearly the superior political entity on the island, and in fact in the archipelago. The English monarchy got its start in the region of Wessex, which ties this whole tangent back to the beginning. Now, given that Wessex contains the Cornish Peninsula, which I described as being on the left-hand bottom side of the ampersand, you can understand that Wessex is in the southwest of England. The Cornish Peninsula is also sometimes called Cornwall. Cornwall is in many ways a northern mirror of the Breton Peninsula of Greater France, which is just across the English Channel. In fact, the two peninsulas run a parallel east-west course, jutting out into the Atlantic. Cornwall contained a Celtic-speaking community until the 20th century, which was closely related to the Breton Celtic community by both dialect and culture. Cornwall is also physically similar to the Breton Peninsula, with a hilly, rocky, rugged interior surrounded by good harbors on the exterior of the peninsula. 
Unlike the Breton Peninsula, the Cornish Peninsula does not seem to have been any more notable for lawlessness or opposition to central authority than any other part of Britain. The rest of Wessex forms a long strip along the southern coast of Britain, running from the tip of the Cornish Peninsula to a line roughly two-thirds of the way along that southern coast, and running inland to a line that runs roughly east from the northern shore of the Cornish Peninsula. If you found that confusing, imagine that peninsula we just talked about jutting off the ampersand. Now imagine that it keeps going into the ampersand until it is a bit past halfway across the ampersand. Alright? The northern border of Wessex is quite important to English history and geography, as it is formed by two of the most important rivers in England, the Severn and the Thames. The Severn has a huge estuary, shaped like a V whose top is facing left. This big estuary divides the Cornish Peninsula from Wales. Once inland, the Severn moves northeast into Mercia, so we're going to leave off a full description of the Severn for now. I should mention very quickly the city of Bath. Bath is well located on a tributary of the Severn Estuary, and is on a good overland route for overland communication with the Thames River Valley. Its prime importance early on seems to have been that its walls survived the Anglo-Saxon invasions, but of course the baths for which it is named were also important. The natural hot springs certainly attracted tourists who were looking for a nice warm bath and who thought that the baths might have medical properties. But it also had had a religious function during the pagan days of Britain's history, and the Catholic Church sought to capitalize on that, so it became an administrative center for the Catholic Church, and then also for the English monarchy. And these factors all combined to make it a rather important center during the Middle Ages. Now let's turn our attention to the Thames. Near its mouth, the Severn passes within 20 miles of the headwaters of the Thames. The Thames, whose name is pronounced more ways than I care to acknowledge at the moment, is the river in British history, and it makes up the northern border of Wessex. It flows from that point within spitting distance of the Severn Estuary, on the west coast of Britain, to its own massive V-shaped estuary on the east coast of Britain. In the process, the Thames crosses most of the width of Britain at one of its widest points, in a rambling east-to-west course that ends in the Thames Estuary almost due east of the Severn Estuary. For those paying attention to such things, the Thames Estuary is represented on our ampersand by the area between the two tails on the right-hand side. When taken together with the tributaries of the Thames, this means that most of the biggest part of the interior of England communicates hydrologically with the Thames River system. The Thames is large, long, and navigable for much of its length, although the navigability was greatly upgraded during the early modern period with the advent of canalization. When taken with the numerous similarly navigable tributaries, this made the Thames Valley the main artery of trade for the middle of England. More about this in a moment. For our purposes, in our discussion of Wessex, we should note that the Thames forms the northern border of Wessex. In so doing, this northern border includes the important trade centers of Swindon and Newbury, and, most important, Oxford. Oxford participated in the trade along the river, and was located at an important river junction between the Thames and one of its tributaries. It is also strategically close to the halfway point between London and the Welsh border at the Severn Estuary. Of course, the economic, political, and cultural importance of Oxford was massively enhanced by the growth of the educational establishments there over the course of the Middle Ages. The portion of Wessex between the Thames and the sea is notable for mostly being flat and fertile, with a general northward slope of the terrain. This means that most of the trade in this inland area, despite being close to the coast, was focused on the Thames. The area along the southern coast is notable for a number of very good harbors, 
but the vagaries of the terrain mean that these towns controlled relatively small hinterlands. The exceptions worth noting here are Portsmouth and Southampton. Both cities are located on waterways that connect to the Solent, that massive sheltered body of water between the Isle of Wight and the mainland. Portsmouth is located near the eastern exit of the Solent, while Southampton is located some ways inland at the intersection of two small rivers with a body of tidal water called the Southampton Water. This unique geography created a relatively rare route inland from the southern coast, and though the rivers are so short I'm not going to bother you with their names, their valleys do allow for easy communication with Reading and thus with the Thames River Valley. In terms of their external location, the Solent ports are also well located. These cities are some of the closest ports in Britain to the Cotentin Peninsula, and thus the mouth of the River Seine and the drainage basin of the majority of northern France. When these advantages are taken together with the amazing harbors these places enjoy, it is actually rather surprising how unimportant they were during the Middle Ages. It turns out that though they enjoyed some prominence in cross-channel trade, had royal favor for naval purposes, and did participate in the wool trade, the ports of the Solent also had some major disadvantages. They were not the closest ports to the Bay of Biscay, and so were not of prime importance in that trade, although they did participate. They also were not the closest port to the mouth of the Rhine, which was the primary location for the wool trade. Although the Seine was important, the trade it participated in was not of prime economic importance for England, while the pirates of Brittany were actually quite close at hand to the ports of the Solent. Though their day would come, these ports were not yet the economic powerhouses they would become in later days. To the east of Wessex, at that tail on the lower right of the ampersand, were a group of old kingdoms that I am going to treat together as one region. Inland, along the Thames and across the river from London, is Surrey. On the Channel Coast, across from Surrey, is Sussex. The tip of this peninsula, formed by the Thames estuary and the English Channel, is Kent. Much that I have said about Wessex is true in these southeastern areas. Along the coast were ports with good harbors but limited inland access, while inland areas traded primarily via the Thames. This includes the city of Dover, whose primary importance comes from the fact that it is the closest point to the French Pas-de-Calais, and thus the closest point to France. Also in this region, near the tip of the Kentish Peninsula, is Canterbury. Canterbury, as far as I can tell, has no real economic advantages to speak of. It is on a navigable river near the mouth of the Thames, and controls something of a hinterland, as well as a reasonably good proximity to France but there are many other equally well-located sites. The main feature of Canterbury was that its Roman walls survived long enough to become the capital of one of the first Anglo-Saxon kingdoms in Britain, Kent. The early prosperity of this kingdom, combined with its proximity to France, made it the chosen home of the first Archbishop of England, who proceeded to gradually convert England to Christianity. This made Canterbury the home of the not inconsiderable wealth of the English Catholic Church, then, in 1170, Thomas a Becket was assassinated at the accidental behest of King Henry II. Becket was named a saint by the Pope, and Canterbury became the focal point of huge numbers of pilgrims from across the British Isles. And that is how, by 1300, Canterbury became the third largest city in England and massively wealthy, despite no obvious economic advantages. The north side of the Thames estuary, roughly the same size as the last three regions combined, but on the north side of the river, is Essex. Essex's main feature is the city of London, so let's talk about London. We have spoken already about the advantages of the Thames in terms of physical geography. It is long, navigable, and well located in the middle of England. 
This by itself might have been enough to ensure the importance of whatever city controlled such a river's mouth. But the location of the mouth compounded these advantages, because the mouth of the Thames is only about 150 miles from the mouth of the Rhine, and even closer to the French shore ports. Other cities in the British Isles had good harbors, or were located on long rivers, or were located close to the mainland of Europe, but no single point combined so many locational advantages as London. Particularly when the cities at the mouth of the Rhine became the focus point not only for, the, for European trade, but for wool manufacture, London became the hegemon of British cities. The importance of this development would play out in many ways over the course of the Middle Ages, but by 1300 its undisputed place at the top of the urban food chain of England was already well secured. So let's go back to our ampersand. You will notice that there is a second tail on the right side of the ampersand, this time pointing up. The tip of this peninsula is called East Anglia. It seems to have been a relatively prosperous region, but not overly heavily involved in trade. Let's go back to the mouth of the Severn, back on the western shore of Britain, near the headwaters of the Thames. From that mouth, roughly north, there is a low earthen wall called Ophus Dyke that was built during the early Middle Ages, and that has been the legal dividing line between England and Wales more or less continually since it was built. If we go back to our ampersand, take a look at that big round bump on the left side. If you draw a line down from that point in the middle where all the lines cross to the point where it meets that extra line we drew to represent the Cornish Peninsula, that is Wales. The area in England to the west of that line, north of the Thames, and west of Essex and East Anglia is Mercia. The northern border of Mercia is a little harder to represent with the ampersand. In fact, the ampersand kind of fails us here. The northern border of Mercia is considered to be the River Humber and is only a little bit narrower than the southern border of Mercia, so Mercia is roughly square-shaped. Again, the ampersand doesn't really help with this, so just imagine Mercia as a big square in the middle of England. Mercia is interesting for a number of reasons. It is the first region we have looked at not named for a tribe of invading Dark Age Germans. For example, Wessex was named for the West Saxons. Mercia instead was named for the Welsh Marches, or the borderlands between England and Wales. Remember how, in Iberia, the various Christian kingdoms secured wealth and power by expanding to the south at the expense of the Islamic states? A similar process happened here in the early Middle Ages. Mercia started as a small, unimportant region between the other Saxon kingdoms and the Welsh. The other Saxon kingdoms were evenly matched and spent their time fighting amongst themselves. The Mercians secured their power by expanding relentlessly at the expense of the Welsh over the course of many generations. Ultimately, when the Welsh were pushed back to the current border, a new king, Offa, made peace with the Welsh and then turned on the other Saxon kings. By that point, Mercia was by far the largest of the old kingdoms, encompassing most of the middle of England. So Offa was able to secure control of most of England and would likely have been the head of a successful dynasty had the Vikings not arrived shortly thereafter. The western side of Mercia retained its character as a border region through much of the Middle Ages, with its lords maintaining castles and large standing armies at the permission of the king, though of course as English control moved into Wales proper, the border region moved it west as well. As things settled down on the western side of Mercia, the most prominent feature of the land became the Severn River system. We have already discussed the estuary of the Severn and how it is located due west of the Thames estuary. From this estuary, the Severn goes inland to the northwest for some miles, before turning north for about half the north-south length of Wales, and then looping back to the west, eventually finding its headwaters in the northern mountains of Wales itself, about which more in a few minutes. The Severn is in many ways like the Thames in character. 
it is a large, navigable river with many navigable tributaries that serve trade through an importantly large portion of the country. As a result, the cities at its mouth, namely Bristol on the southwest corner of Mercia and Cardiff at the southeast corner of Wales, have indeed profited from trade. The cities in the interior have also done well off trade, namely Gloucester, Worcester, Birmingham, and Shrewsbury. But the Severn was not to attain real importance until the Industrial Revolution. Unlike the Thames, the Severn faces west, away from the important European trade centers. In fact, the most important trade conducted via the Severn seems to have been in Irish slaves, which is kind of unfortunate. The western side of Mercia seems to have been very similar to neighboring East Anglia in many ways. It was flat, fertile, and pretty quiet. I suppose every country needs a boring heartland, like the Midwest of the United States, that is productive, happy, quiet, and boring. The south of Mercia was part of the Thames Valley, which I really don't feel like I need to cover any further. The north of Mercia is interesting for a few reasons. First, it is where Nottingham is, of Robin Hood fame. Nottingham was a marginally important market town that had some political importance as a government center. Northwest of Nottingham, in the very middle of the island, there is a tumble of hills that form the beginnings of the mountain chain that will be of increasing importance as we move further north. West of these hills, at the northwest corner of Mercia and near the Welsh border, anyone familiar with modern England will note the complete absence of Liverpool and Manchester. Two of the most important locations of the Industrial Revolution, and great cities in their own right in the modern day, neither seem to have been much more than villages in 1300. Let's go back to Nottingham for a moment. Nottingham is located on a tributary of the Humber River, and this is probably the best place to start talking about that. The Humber is, by a conventional definition, not a river but an estuary. It forms the mouth of a number of rivers, most of which are relatively navigable and of some regional importance. As such, the Humber forms a drainage basin of some importance in the north of England, which straddles the line between Mercia and Northumbria. But most of the important cities are actually on the north side of this line, so let's now turn our attention to both Cumbria and Northumbria. We spoke earlier about how Mercia forms a square in the middle of England. Well, if you take that square and put another one on top of it, you have Northumbria and Cumbria together. That tumble of hills down in the north of Mercia has become a range of small mountains or large hills up in this area, and these hills form a dividing line between Cumbria in the west and Northumbria in the east. For many years, the Humber was actually the northern border of England, and from here on out the landscape is going to start behaving much more like Scotland than England. This is certainly the case in Cumbria, which becomes more hilly the further north one goes, and as its coastline faces away from trade networks, it never really integrated itself as well as it could have with the wider European economy. The northern border of this area, and thus of England, is a political boundary that runs along the River Tweed, and then continues in a southwestern direction across the neck of the island. This border was set in 1249, 51 years before our base year of 1300, and has remained more or less static ever since. Wars between Scotland and England in the interim have been over control of Scotland in its entirety, not over the borders. Which is not to say that the borders were peaceful. Indeed, this region was probably the most lawless in England. The nobility enjoyed all the advantages that border lords everywhere in the Middle Ages enjoyed. The right to maintain a standing army, the right to build castles, and a grudging acceptance of their tendency to switch sides in the ongoing conflict whenever it benefited their family. They also had the ability, for most of the Middle Ages, to raid on the other side of the border for loot. 
They did not usually conquer territory, but they stole everything of value. Repeatedly. For decades, if not centuries. As a result, the nobility were wealthy and powerful, while the peasants lived in a constant state of fear and lived on the edge of starvation. Northumbria's capital, York, came to politically, militarily, and economically dominate both regions. And there's a couple reasons for this. York is located in the southern third of Northumbria, far from the dangerous Scottish border, and yet well located in terms of road and river connections to provide an administrative seat for operations along the border, due to easy communications. The preservation of its Roman walls meant that it was fortified early, which added an important level of security, but its locational advantages went further than distance and walls. York is separated from the dangerous Scottish border by the Tyne and the Tess rivers, as well as a eastern spur of the central mountain chain that juts to the west, but has a nice, comfortably wide and flat gap, allowing for those easy communications. This means that invaders who were able to overcome resistance along the border and the various fortifications along the rivers would still have to deal with maneuvering against an army that was being well-coordinated from York. As a secure place at the center of a good communications network, York became the focus not only of military life within the northern region, but also political life and religious life. York also contains a relatively flat and fertile hinterland, and those easy waterborne communications are also very good for trade. This differentiates York from anywhere in Cumbria, say, which, though defensible, is very mountainous and would have trouble feeding itself and isn't well located to any trade networks. Now let's go ahead and cross over into Scotland. The Scottish monarchy was never as powerful as the English monarchy. There's a couple reasons for this. First, the Scottish monarchy was never as unified or centralized as the English monarchy. This was partly due to the way they were founded in the early Middle Ages. Another more geographical issue is that Scotland, for the most part, is as mountainous as England is flat and fertile. Though this made it relatively easy for the Scottish to resist incursions by the English, it also made it easy for regional lords to resist incursions from the Scottish monarchy. Nevertheless, it was a functional central government, or at least enough of one that the two monarchies could regard each other as equals. You know, the kind of equals who constantly try and kill each other and take their stuff. Nonetheless, the contest between Scotland and England had a markedly different tone from that between England and Wales, or England and Ireland. Although England could raise bigger armies, the battles were fought in the way that medieval battles were supposed to be fought, on an open field or in a set-piece siege. Furthermore, being mountainous has some pointed tactical advantages. Nonetheless, 1300 is kind of a low ebb in English-Scottish relations. Edward I, the King of England at this time, has essentially taken advantage of a succession crisis to basically just kind of walk in and take over for no reason. The result was the First Scottish War of Independence, which in 1300 was swinging decidedly in the favor of the English. The disastrous for the Scots Battle of Falkirk had taken place in 1298, and William Wallace, of Braveheart fame, would be executed in 1305. However, this brief interlude of English control would end in 1314, when Robert the Bruce, a.k.a. Robert the Axe, drove the British out. Let's go back to the border. Those mountains we had discussed in England do not, in fact, just stop at the border, but keep right on going. The west side of these mountains is called Strathclyde, and the east is Dunbar. The areas just across the border in England are often considered the inhospitable north by the English, but for the Scots these regions were mild lowlands. 
Neither area had any major cities or trade networks, but this lowland Scottish region produced far more food and wealth than the highland regions further north. And of course, the border lords on this side of the border enjoyed the same wealth, privileges, and power that the English border lords enjoyed on the other side of the border. As we move north of the border, we finally run into an area where we can reasonably talk about the ampersand again. I missed that ampersand. I just like the word ampersand. Anyway, around this point of Scotland, north of Strathclyde and Dunbar, the island narrows to a waist that we could reasonably compare to the crossing point of the ampersand. This narrow neck and the surrounding areas happened to be relatively flat and fertile, and so were the medieval bread basket of Scotland. The area also contains the two most important cities of Scotland, Glasgow on the west shore and Edinburgh on the east. Both cities participated in trade, but mostly they were administrative centers. Glasgow for the church, and Edinburgh for the monarchy. North of this narrow neck is the highland regions of Scotland, that upper bump on our ampersand. As opposed to the south, here the mountains form huge parallel ridges, running from northeast to southwest. In between the ridges are steep valleys, the only places really fit for agriculture, which also sometimes contain long, thin lakes. Where the valleys meet the sea, they sometimes form thin bays, similar to Norwegian fjords but called firths by the Scots. The biggest of these valleys is the Ness, and it bisects the region. In the middle of the valley is the famous Loch Ness, one of those long, narrow lakes. At either end are huge, narrow bays. In fact, the valley is so watery that there are only a few crossing places. In the crossing place at the head of the bay on the northeastern side of the valley is Inverness. Inverness commands a strategic location, and as such commanded political and military importance throughout the Middle Ages, So that's about it for Scotland. The ruggedness of the Scottish terrain made trade difficult and produced few resources of value in the Middle Ages. On the other hand, the mountainous terrain made military resistance to an invader easy, although it also meant that centralized control was difficult. The terrain presented something of a ruggedness sandwich. There were hills and mountains near the border with England, although this area was still fertile enough to produce some food. Then there was a good lowland region in the middle, and then the highland region, which was very rugged up in the north. These terrain advantages, combined with such trade as did occur and the political developments that occurred within the Scottish monarchy, meant that the Scottish monarchy was able to resist the advances of the English throughout the Middle Ages. Let's turn our attention now to Wales. Remember earlier when I was introducing Mercia, that north-south line dividing the left-hand side of the ampersand from the rest? That bump is Wales. Wales, unlike Scotland and Ireland, which were never Romanized, is the place where the native Roman Britons were driven back when the Anglo-Saxons invaded. They were given a temporary reprieve by the Viking raids and the Norman conquest, but unfortunately for the Welsh, Wales did not unify politically until it was far too late to stand up to the English. Wales is a rugged and mountainous country, but it is more rugged and more mountainous as you move towards the interior. As a result, all the fertile lands are near the coast, while all the defensible lands are in the interior. You will note the contrast to Scotland, which is more finely marbled. As was mentioned in Mercia, the Welsh border region was controlled by powerful English noble families. These families enjoyed the privileges that all noble border families enjoyed. The right to maintain standing armies, the right to have castles, and the ability to expand at the expense of the guy on the other side of the border. These families continually, if slowly, expanded into Wales over the course of the Middle Ages. By 1300, this process meant that the majority of the country, and the vast majority of the fertile territory, was controlled by English nobles. This was particularly true in the regions along the southern, southwestern, and western coasts of Wales. 
all regions that were firmly under the control of the English border lords by the year 1300. This process was accelerated when one of the Welsh nobles tried to centralize Welsh authority, which resulted in a series of wars with Edward I. By the time of Edward's death, a few years after 1300, only a few areas remained in Welsh hands, notably the island of Anglesey off the northwestern tip of Wales, the peninsula of Carnarvon, which was very close to Anglesey, and Snowdonia, the mountainous interior of the country. Of these areas, Anglesey and Carnarvon were fertile, but Snowdonia was not. You'll note how different the situation is in Wales from Scotland. Not only is the country not unified politically, but the defensible areas are physically greatly separated from the productive areas. Obviously, this was a logistical problem, but it also meant the English treated the Welsh very differently from the way they treated the Scottish. They were not treated as equals, even equals whose stuff you try and steal. Instead, the Welsh were simply dominated as much as the English could get away with. Off the west coast of the island of Britain is the island of Ireland. As I've said, Ireland looks sort of like a bean. But I need to be a little bit more specific than that in order to get some of the geography out of the way, so I'm going to ask you to imagine a banana. In fact, I'd like you to imagine the banana from the cover of the Velvet Underground and Nico's famous Andy Warhol album. Got it? Now imagine that someone took a square that was aligned left, right, up, down, uh, so parallel to the edges of the album cover, and jammed it into the left side of the banana. For our purposes, this is going to represent the island of Ireland. The issues involved in Ireland are probably the most removed from the experience of a modern person looking back to the Middle Ages. Much like Wales, Ireland did not coalesce under a single political organization or even a single cultural identity during the Middle Ages. This was compounded by Ireland's unique geography. As discussed, Ireland has a flat, fertile interior ringed with mountains. The only real geography the inner part of the island has are rivers, but the lack of political maturity in Ireland meant that these rivers never turned into important trading networks and didn't develop cities without outside interference. Instead, they cut up the interior of the island into a mind-boggling labyrinth of waterways and marshlands, separated by fertile lowland areas. There wasn't much to differentiate one patch of ground from the next, and so no one was able to gain strategic advantage. There were no choke points, there was nothing controlling access to anywhere, there weren't any communication networks, and there weren't any trade routes. One might be tempted to think that with nothing to fight over, everything would lapse into a state of peace, but in fact the opposite was true. It was more of a constant all-way free-for-all, with incessant feuding going on between different noble families. One might expect the arrival of the English into this scene to change things, but it really didn't. A group of English nobles invaded as early as 1069, but it wasn't really an official expedition, and the monarchy's relationship with the invasion of Ireland was always somewhat arm's length. Dublin was set up as the seat of de jure government of the island, but its actual influence didn't extend very far outside the city. These English lords and their families held most of the actual power in Ireland, but they didn't use it for any concerted goal. There was no centralized organization. And so very quickly they were absorbed by Ireland. They married into the local gentry, and they began adopting the local practice of incessant feuding, both amongst themselves and amongst the local gentry, again without any centralized goal or purpose. Conversely, the native Irish lords had adopted most of the practices of the invading English. They began using heavy cavalry, they used castles, they oppressed the peasantry. By 1300, the English nobles technically controlled the majority of the island. 
but one would be hard-pressed to tell the difference between the invading English nobility and the remaining Irish nobility. Happily, throughout all this chaos, Ireland has historically been divided into four provinces, roughly based on the holdings of a few pre-Viking Irish kingdoms. If you remember our image of the banana with the square, this is where it really comes into its own. So the bottom part of the banana, below the box, or the southern tip of Ireland if you'd prefer to think of it that way, is called Munster. The square sticking out the left-hand side of the banana is Knocht. The part of the banana opposite the square, on the left-hand side, is Leinster. The part of the banana above the square is Ulster. Let's start with Munster. Munster, as I have said, is the southwestern tip of Ireland. It contains three cities founded by the Vikings. Limerick at the north corner near the box, Cork on the south coast but back away from the tip, and Waterford near the northeast corner of the region. The Anglo-Irish lords had founded several other cities, but these three remained the most important due to their location along the coast, allowing easy access to fishing and trade, and their extensive fortifications, which is rather important when you treat the natives as poorly as the Anglo-Irish did. Several pockets of native lordship still held on in Munster, although, as I've said, in practice this didn't matter much. Leinster is the eastern portion of the island, on the outside curve of the banana and across from the square. Leinster contains several moderately important Anglo-Irish foundations and one very important Viking one, Dublin. Dublin is situated at the mouth of the Liffey, one of the more important rivers in Ireland. The Liffey is much like the Thames. It is not the longest river in the island, but it creates a good harbor. Its hinterland is some of the more important parts of the heartland of the island, and it faces towards a useful destination in terms of European trade routes. As such, Dublin is the nearest thing there is to a strategic location in Ireland. It was also the seat of royal control, and was surrounded by an area called the Pale, that represented the area of most firm English monarchical control. Dublin has had a tendency towards hegemonic domination of Ireland the way London does in England, and for similar reasons. Knocht is the square and the areas where it connects with the banana. The square is aligned east-west, due to an interesting mountain formation. The city of Galway was founded by the Anglo-Irish lords, and gained a foothold in fishing and trade. The borderlands between Leicester and Knocht had some native Irish holdouts, as did the mountains along the western coasts of Knocht and the eastern coast of Leinster. Ulster was largely a native holdout, in its entirety, with little penetration by the Anglo-Irish lords. It also doesn't seem to have any major cities to speak of, but it was very politically important, and was engaged in a fair amount of cultural and commercial exchange with Scotland. So that's the British Isles. As we saw, the English monarchy is the most organized, with the most populous territory, and with the best agricultural territory, but a lot depended on the personality of the king. Scotland was under English control in 1300, but that control was tenuous due to the ruggedness of the terrain and the organization of the government. Wales had just slipped into nearly complete domination by the English, and unlike the Scots, had no supportable refuges and no organized government. Ireland had neither organized government nor terrain-based refuges, but a lack of attention from the British monarchy, combined with the special nature of the terrain and the populace, meant that the Anglo-Irish nobility ruled as they wished, and they were gradually assimilated into the local gentry. That's it for this time. Thanks very much for listening, and tune in in two weeks for the walking tour section on Scandinavia.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. 